Well, good evening, y'all. I was feeling a little bit country after that, you know. Ended on a little three-part. I was doing the fourth-part harmony over there. From, from, from screaming my brains out at a basketball game last night, so you guys get the Pastor Chuck imitation. Oh, you know, turn in your Bibles tonight to Hebrews chapter 10. So, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, if you would. And while you're turning there, last time we saw this incredible picture of Jesus as our sanctuary and his home in heaven. And at the end of chapter 9, in verse 27, there is a very, very, very important verse that helps us understand chapter 10. And it's a verse that people don't like. It is a verse that when people read it, they're going, that's unfair. Because I think a lot of people would like to believe that there's a chance after you take your last breath on this earth. And verse 27 says, And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, judgment. My friends, to not have your life squared away before you take your last breath is eternally fatal. There is no second chance. There is no getting prayed out of it. There is no purgatory. There is no other way. There isn't going to be a great harvest of souls a million years from now where God says that's enough. To die once is to die twice. To, to have that second birth is to guarantee yourself just one death. You're going to die once and you're going to be in the presence of God. It, it is that simple. But if you're not born again, if you do not receive and have not believed, when you take your last breath on this earth, the next thing that awaits you is a judgment. And that judgment will initially send you, should the Lord have not returned to this earth, to await the final judgment at the great white throne. You'll be sent to the Abuso, the dwelling place of the dead, wherein it is not anything but very warm. People don't like that. People don't want to hear it. But it is imperative in the teaching of the good news of the gospel, that you understand there is an option B. And option B is not a good option. And so you really have the choice. Die once, then judgment, and you're either going to be judged on the merit of the grace of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which is the context of chapter 10, or you're going to die once, and be judged on your own merit compared to God's holiness. That's the two options. And so as we study chapter 10, it makes it all that much more beautiful that Jesus died once for all. It's the plain statement of Scripture that there is no one who's ever been born that's been outside 
of the grace of God because of where they were born, who they were born to, what nation they landed in, uh, who they happened to know growing up, whether their parents did or did not divorce, whether they had siblings that were not kind, whether they were poor or rich. There has never been anyone ever born for whom the blood of Christ has not been sufficient. That's the beauty of grace. The Old Testament saints waited for the completion of that plan. And what we've been seeing is the superiority of the new covenant compared to the old. The old was a shadow, and we're going to see more of that tonight. The old was a picture, very roughly drawn. We'll see that exact analogy tonight. But the old covenant could not, did not, and cannot ever forgive sin. It didn't do it. It's plainly stated in tonight's passage. All it did was establish a relationship with God wherein God tolerated the existence of mankind, in essence, through the keeping of his law. He allowed mankind to continue. He put away judgment for a later date and time until Jesus Christ came to this earth and died to make sure that that which was temporary in the old was made permanent in the new. And so as we begin chapter 10 tonight, we're going to look at the first 18 verses. I want you to bear in mind that each of us, each of us, if you're here tonight and you're in Christ Jesus, has had that born again experience. Jesus spoke about to Nicodemus. He said, lest a man be born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. And the question was, how can a man enter again into his mother's womb? That wasn't what he was talking about. He was talking about the sacrifice that would be made for all. And so I pray tonight we're encouraged and strengthened and built up as we look here at the beginning part of Hebrews chapter 10. Would you pray with me? Father God, we once again are turning our attention unto your scriptures and to the mighty and inerrant and powerful word of God, your word, Lord. And your word declares of itself that the whole of it, the sum of it, the total of it, there in Psalm 40 says, was written about you, Jesus, the old and the new. And what was concealed in the Old Testament, God, was revealed in the new. And we pray tonight you would continue revealing yourself to us. Help us to understand it, to know in our hearts that we're your children, to rest in it, to walk in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Hebrews 10. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and I would draw your attention to that word shadow, it's actually a term that translated roughly could mean sketch or drawing. It's a pencil sketch. The law was in essence like most good artists. Interestingly enough, when you study art, you're going to find that most of the great works of all time were generally pencil sketched first before they were painted. You'll find behind the beautiful finishing touches a pencil sketch of the rough outline. And that's the picture here. 
The law was simply a pencil sketch, if you will, of the things to come. It was the rough draft. It was a drawing made on a napkin, as I have made so many with Pastor Chuck. I've sat down at tables all over the world and designed things just on the fly. It's like, oh, I think we should do this over here, you know. And he'd pull out a napkin and get a pen or a pencil and start scribbling all over it. And, of course, that's not our, you cannot take that to the building department and go, here, we want to build this. It's just a rough sketch. But there is enough in the rough sketch for you to draw the rest of the plan. And it is the final plan that you're looking forward to. It's not the pencil drawing. You're not going to go to Building and Safety in Twin Peaks and go, I'd like to review the plans for my house because they keep a copy of all of them. They're now digitized and you can go over there and pull up the the films in essence of the house that you live in. And it'll have all of the finished drawings in there. But at some point in time, that was a thought in somebody's mind. And it went from a thought to a sketch to a set of very complex drawings to the actual house. And so it is that the life of Christ is revealed in the Old Testament a little bit at a time as a shadow of things to come. And then the reality of Jesus came on the scene. For the law, all of it, and the word that's translated their law doesn't just mean the Ten Commandments. It means the sum and totality of the entire Old Testament. Everything that God previously wrote the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, wasn't the whole thing, but it was a shadow, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. In other words, what happened in the Old Testament could never perfect anyone. People very often go, well, you mean the Old Testament saints, you know, when they offered sacrifice, you mean they they weren't forgiven? No, they were not completely forgiven. Those sins were temporarily dealt with, but they were not erased until Jesus came. Because there was no final sacrifice for them. There was a type. There was a picture. There was a sketch. In essence, God made a promise and said, when Jesus comes, you believe by faith. I'll complete it when he comes. But for right now, they still exist. Those things that were offered continually year by year, mark it well, made those who approach couldn't make them perfect. For then they would have not have ceased to be offered. In other words, the picture is this. If, in fact, they could have erased the sins, the temple would have been unnecessary ultimately if it could have done something permanently to deal with the sins of mankind, then you could have gone to the temple once and it would have been over. But it couldn't. It never did. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. They would have gone in, they would have offered their sacrifice, said, here's my bull, here's my goat, here's my corn, here's my oil, here's my bread, and oh, by the way, I'm throwing in a couple extra pigs just for the... They would have offered it up, they would have had no consciousness of sin. 
because they would have been, in essence, okay with God. Because the Holy Spirit did not indwell them in the Old Testament. And so because there was no indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and because the temple sacrifices were not sufficient to fully erase, obliterate, wipe out, and take care of sin, they had to keep being done forever and ever and ever. And in essence, you were never done. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Isn't that awesome? Think about it. Because it, it does something that now the Holy Spirit does. It makes the law, in essence, hopeless to trust in. Because the moment you go in, the first thing you think about is, well, I did this and I did that because the sins couldn't be obliterated. They were still there. How many of you have junk on your refrigerator? They're little remembrances of all kinds of things, aren't they? On our refrigerator, we try and get refrigerator magnets anywhere we go. And, and, it's, and not the kind you buy. Well, we don't actually heist them, but we ask the people if we can have their, you know, their little business card magnets and stuff. And so we have like June Lake property reservations and we have Hana Flower Company on there. And then on those are like pictures of missionary friends. And we have all this stuff all over our refrigerator. And there's your appointment. It's basically your calendar, right? It's like over here is the dog's appointment, and over there is our appointment, and there's you know reminders over here. We even have the little doggy footprint things that beep to tell us to give our dogs their medicine. That's exactly what the temple would have been. Every time you went in there, it would have been, oh, bread of life. Yeah, I need a lot more of that. Oh, the altar of incense. Yes, I haven't been praying like I should, and I haven't been talking to God, and lampstand. I mean, I'm not, I haven't been much of a light this week, today, certainly not most of the year. You, you see, the temple would have been something that when they looked at it, it's just like, how big a failure can you get? And I want you to understand something. The, the temple that they're talking about at this time would have, would have been the second temple followed by the temple of Herod. The temple of Herod was 150 feet tall. It was a huge structure. It was finished in about 46 A.D. The thing was about 90 feet. It was, actually, it was actually much taller than it was wide. 60 feet or so wide, about 90 feet long. 60 feet of that was the holy place, and about another 30 feet of that was the Holy of Holies. And so there's this huge, tall, marble, gold-gilded thing sitting on the hill going, Unclean. Get away from me. It's kind of like the stuff on your refrigerator. Ah, I forgot my doctor's appointment. I forgot to call Aunt Susie. And you look at him, oh, we had a great time there, but oh, that time's over. You see, staring at the temple would have brought a lot of guilt into your life. Because you'd realize that you hadn't been perfect. And so you look up there and you realize God demands holiness from his people. And it's like, oh, no. You see, because your memories do one of two things, generally speaking, right? They are either good or they're what we call not good, a.k.a. bad, abysmal, vile, despicable, disgusting, horrible, horrific, evil, just generally not nice. Amen? 
Anybody still have things in their head that they wish weren't there? Aren't you glad they've been erased by the blood of the Lamb? You still remember them, but God doesn't. Because He is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. His Word declares the New Covenant says that even though you can look at His holiness, you can see it, you understand it, but positionally, it's just as if you'd never sinned. That was not true in the Old Testament. Those things still remained. They were simply put away. They were to be dealt with at a later point in time. And so it says, verse 4, For it is not possible, notice this, underline it, for those who think the Old Testament saints were forgiven and forgotten before Jesus came to this earth, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. They were never taken away. They were simply stored up to be dealt with eventually by those who believe by faith, which is what chapter 11 is about, for those of you who have looked ahead. For Abraham, the father of faith, believed, and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. You see, they were waiting for the same thing that you and I have experienced. They were waiting for the finished work of Christ. Sometimes those forgotten things that we dredge up in our minds, uh, they can be warm and fuzzy or they can be a very cruel adversary. Amen? There are things that we think on, it's just like, oh, man. Can I tell you something? That's why Jesus died. He, he died to deal with those things so that you don't have to think about them for the rest of your life. He whom the Son has made free is free indeed. Not partially free, not kind of sort of free, not maybe free. You see, the Old Testament saints were not free indeed. They died in faith, but they died looking forward to the time that they would be free indeed. Sometimes we are even tempted to ask God, and I can tell you that we think this because we act like it. God, do you remember that? You remember this thing, that thing? Because we remember them, amen? And you struggle with those things of the past? Tell me of God, it's time for you to let God have those things. Because He doesn't remember them anymore. If you've asked for forgiveness, as far as God's concerned, they don't exist in Jesus. They have been espunged from your record. You just got your whole computer file cleaned by the blood of the Lamb. There's no information left in it to see. They're going to open it up and it's going to go empty. Zip. You see, the Old Covenant contained the requirements of the law, but it did not provide a solution to the requirements. That's one of the great differences between the Old Covenant and the New. The Old Covenant told you what was wrong, but really didn't tell you how to fix it. The New Covenant fixed it. And so that shadow, it didn't make anything perfect. It just simply pointed out the problem. And you know, there's an interesting thing that when you think on these, this whole concept of what the law represented to, to, to them and to us, you know, a lot of people looked at those sacrifices, especially the Old Testament 
covenant sacrifices, which we'll look at a little bit more in here in just a second. When you look at those Old Testament sacrifices, it almost seems like they'd be sufficient to do the job. Amen? And that's because God designed it. It was perfect insofar as God designed it. The problem was, is the people who were trying to keep it, just like you and me. That's why they needed grace, and that's why we need grace. They didn't need something different, and they couldn't get saved a different way. They needed the same thing you and I need, which is grace, that's sufficient for our weaknesses, that allows us to draw near to God, that veil is torn, we can enter in, we can be in the presence of God, not because we're perfect, not because we're do-gooders, not because you've, you haven't said a cuss word in three weeks, you know, you, you haven't had a glass of whatever in how many months, you, you haven't thought a filthy thought in the last ten decades. That's not why you're going to heaven. Okay? That is not why you're going to heaven. You're going to heaven in spite of the fact you had those thoughts, and in spite of the fact that you did those things, and in spite of the fact that you still think about those things and dredge them up in your memory banks, the blood of Christ has allowed God to forget them. Thank you, Jesus. He doesn't remember them anymore. He's God, so he obviously could if he wanted to. Amen? God can't be taught anything. He can't learn anything, and nothing can surprise him. Otherwise, he's not omniscient and omnipotent. He's none of those omni-things. Okay? So God can't learn anything. So if he doesn't know something, it implies he, he would have to learn it. So they're there, but the blood of Jesus is that powerful. It blots them out so that they cannot be seen. They're invisible as far as God's concerned. They're dealt with. By the blood of the Lamb. Verse 2, it says, For if they could have, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation because I think it helps us understand it. If they, being the laws, the sacrifices, could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshippers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But the reason that they came back is because the guilt remained. Praise God, we can be freed from guilt because of Christ Jesus our Lord. Because I don't know about you, I've done enough stuff in my life that if I were to dwell on those things, if I was to think on the things that I even thought about, it would be sufficient to crush me. But praise God, because of Jesus, that guilt's gone. I have been made perfect in Him. Not I am perfect, He is perfect. And because the life that I now live, I live in Him, I am, in essence, perfect. Not in a human sense, but in a Christly sense. He's sufficient, where I'm insufficient. You see, the law couldn't erase guilt. It could only highlight guilt. That must have been a very fearful thing, to realize the moment you walked out of the court of praise the court of women, the court of Gentiles, and you walk through the multicolored gate, back out into the real world, the moment you walk through, you were dirty again. There's no doubt you saw something, thought something, did something, 
somebody walked by, some person that you knew who had done something, and all of a sudden that thought pops in your head that isn't supposed to be there. Can you imagine the bucket loads of guilt that they must have walked around with? Can you imagine the deforestation and the death of the animals? Think about it. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote of a time about ten or so years after the death of Christ that in one Passover festival in Jerusalem, over 200,000 sheep were slaughtered. Two, you can have one sheep, by the way, for counts for ten people. That means that two million people offered up. Can you imagine how long that would have taken? And yet they're still guilty? All that religious activity. That's why when I see people burdened down with guilt, they come to church and they're there day after day after day. They come to every study. I believe there are people, quite frankly, that are addicted to church. I really do. I think that. You know why I think that? Because if they were coming for the right reason, they wouldn't be so guilt-ridden. They're, they're coming to church because they think church does something to forgive them. They're, they're thinking that somehow I have something to impart to somebody. I've had people, well, would you pray for me? So I'm like, I can't pray for you any more than you can pray for yourself. I'd be happy to pray with you, but praying for you? You can pray for yourself just as effectively. You see, that's what the law used to do. It was a system. Well, I'll just go back to the temple. I'll go get another sheep. I'll get another loaf of bread. I'll get some grain. I'm going to get some oil. And I'm going to go back. Family of God, if you're in Christ Jesus, you can forget about your sin. Because God doesn't remember it anymore. The guilt that you feel is from the enemy of your soul. It's not from God. These two words you need to remember. Condemnation versus conviction. Condemnation comes from the enemy. And that's what gives you guilt. It says you're not worthy. Remember what you did? Remember what you said? Remember how you acted? Remember the thoughts that you thought. Remember what those people were doing. And you thought these things. The enemy condemns. That's why Jesus said, I did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through me would be saved. He came that we could have a right relationship with God so that ultimately the Holy Spirit being in us would bring conviction. That's a very different thing. Condemnation is about the past. Conviction is about the present and the future. And when you remember that condemnation is about the past, the past is clean in Jesus. If you have asked for forgiveness, it's forgiven. And the moment that you think about it, and you're talking to God, and you're saying, Lord, I'm sorry, it's forgiven. The enemy brings condemnation. And that's exactly what the Old Testament sacrifices did. Just brought condemnation. It's like, did I bring enough goats? Did I bring enough sheep? Did I bring enough bread? Did I bring enough oil? Did I bring enough of anything? Because I'm not sure it covers it all. Because there was no forgiveness. They carried that load of guilt around with them, and the enemy through condemnation was able to do that. 
When you have those times, I would just remind you to free your memory with the joy of the freedom that you have in Christ. Remind the enemy of your soul where he's going to go one day. Simply let him know that his eternal destiny has already been secured by Jesus Christ. He just hasn't come back to make good on it yet. And don't walk around in that guilt. Don't walk around in that pain. The more you have the Word of God in you, the more able you are to withstand those attacks when they come. Verse 5, it goes on to say, and this is a quotation from the 40th Psalm, and it says, Therefore, then he came into the world, and when he came into the world, he said, So when he, who's the he? Uh, That would be Jesus. Where is this first found? Psalm 40, that would be the Old Testament. When was it written? About a thousand years before Jesus Christ walked on this earth. Notice what it says. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. God wasn't really interested in the sacrifices and the offerings. It says, But a body... You have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. You had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. And in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. And so the whole of the Old Testament, as described here in the book of Hebrews, as is quoted from the 40th Psalm, is about Jesus. The whole thing. The volume of the book was written about him. Jesus can be found in the very first chapter of the very first book of your Bible. Jesus is also found in the very last chapter of the very last book in your Bible, and everything in between is written of him. The whole thing. It doesn't matter what part you're in. Sometimes, well, man, I just believe in the words of Jesus. Well, you kind of need to have the whole rest of the story. Because the Bible that you're reading out of says the whole thing's about him. That the Old Testament pointed to the new. Christ didn't leave the people that were of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant under it. He brought them out from underneath it. He listed them above the Old Testament covenants. He took them out of that darkness of the sacrifices. And it plainly says, sacrifice and offering, I didn't really want that. That was the system that God laid down because it was the closest he could get without Jesus being on this earth. In essence, it showed a picture. It was a pencil drawing of Jesus who would come. It was that artist rendering, if you will. Probably some of you have seen those funky drawings that people make, you know, and they have like the stick people in them and everything of an artist, of a, of a building that's going to be drafted. But it has the little stick people and the stick cars. and You kind of get a general sense. But boy, when they actually build the building, it doesn't look anything like the artist rendering, basically. It's way better. So the new order, the new covenant, just completely did away with the old. It's interesting that this phrase, and it really can be translated obedience versus sacrifice, God didn't desire the sacrifices. He wanted people to simply obey him. 
It was a hard issue. Now you know why Jeremiah 31 was quoted. I'll write a new covenant in their hearts. And that new covenant is not going to just be etched in stone. It's not going to be etched in granite. It's going to be something that's internal. It won't be external. It's not going to be something you do. It will be something that has been done. The difference between grace and the law. Our first and highest priority, our first and highest privilege as the body of Christ is exactly the same as Jesus's. It's to do the will of God the Father. That should be our priority too. The problem was under the Old Testament covenants, it was not possible. You, you could not fully fulfill the will of God. You could have glimpses of it. You could get close if you happen to be the high priest. You could get a little less close if you happen to be a temple priest. If you happen to serve out in the court, you were a little further away still. And if you were a Gentile who didn't have a Jewish friend, you were about 10 billion miles from God. And there was no way to draw near. That's why it says it was never about the sacrifices. Because that couldn't draw everybody. That could only draw some people. He had no pleasure in them. And when you read through uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, it says one of, one of those verses that many of you have probably heard in, in some fashion quoted. For I desire obedience, for it is far better than sacrifice. You see, obedience draws you to that place that you recognize you'll never make it on your own. The more I know of God's word, and the more obedient to it I am, the more I understand I can't make it on my own. It's not possible. I need grace. I have to have mercy. I need God's forgiveness. That's why when somebody says, well, I just want justice, I I look at them and I go, are you kidding? You want justice and judgment? Really? I understand it sounds good, and logically speaking, you know, it's like you think you're better than somebody else, but the bottom line is, you're not good enough. That's why God never saw sacrifices over obedience to the things of God. Instead of penance, the Lord wants a broken and contrite heart, is what the 51st Psalm says. You see, so what he's saying is, is ultimately... It's always been about the heart condition. It's never been about the position of the tabernacle set up from east to west. It was never about which way the gate opened. It was never about whether the incense was kept constantly burning inside of the holy place. Those things were all simply shadows of what would come and be completed in Christ Jesus. That's why when his sacrifice was finally made... When we get to the the tenth verse, it was like a giant breath of fresh air to the entire world. Because if you were a Gentile, you were just flat out dead. If you were a Jew and you weren't participating in all the things you were supposed to do, you knew you had a problem with God, you just weren't quite sure how bad it was. Maybe if you were of the tribe of Levi, you kind of thought you were on God's team. But the bottom line is everyone without Christ was lost. 
And so, to a degree, and you can now see that, it's always been about faith. It's never been about just simple obedience either. Because even obedience can become a false god. I know people that, you know, they, they think they, they kind of do like Bible one-upsmanship. And it's really actually kind of funny sometimes for me as a pastor. You know, people will come and they'll, you know, rattle off four or five Bible verses in a row. And I'm supposed to be impressed, I guess. And, and I love the fact that people learn Scripture, by the way. But it's, you know what? You could learn the whole Bible. You could know every last word of it and still not be saved. Unless it gets here. If it doesn't make it to the heart, if it's not inscribed there, and it's only inscribed up here, then all you are is deeply religious and it can't save you. That's what the Jews had. They were deeply religious. They knew everything there was that God had revealed about himself to the world at that time. They knew every bit of it. That's why when I started this study, I said you're going to see the parallel between this and basically world religions. That religious attempt to try and claw your way to God through good works, through self-preservation, Buckle down and just, I'm going to be a wall against evil. I hate to tell you this, your wall ain't ever going to be high enough. Because there's way more evil in this world than you will ever be able to handle by yourself. That's why you need Jesus. You see how every one of these things points to Jesus? Everything that man has ever thought up points back to Jesus. Because at some point in time it fails. It's like, okay, it got us 98% of the way there. 2% off? Hell. 10% off? Hell. 20% off? Still hell. Doesn't matter how much you miss by. Does not matter how much you miss by. That is humanism. Humanism says, I'm better than that guy, so naturally I'm okay. That's what humanism says. Grace says the most wretched of sinner and the most seasoned of saint needs grace. So wherever you are on that scale, way down here or way up here, you still need the same thing. And that's the blood of Christ to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Verse 8, it goes on to say, previously saying, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin you do not desire nor had pleasure in them. Why do you think God repeats things? Because we're stupid. And we don't listen. I have no pleasure in sacrifices. I don't want you to kill yourself trying to prove yourself to me. I don't want you to go broke. I don't want you to do any of those things. That is not God. So please, in Jesus' name, stop beating yourself up. No amount of beating yourself up is going to make you any more righteous before God than you are the moment you say yes to Jesus Christ. He doesn't desire those things. He's not looking for you to pay your own way. Jesus paid your way. 
He's already taken care of it. The debt's paid. And then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, for he takes away the first, that he may establish the second. Takes away the Old Testament, the law, the sacrifices, all those things. Not that they weren't sufficient, but man couldn't keep it. Because man couldn't keep it, and man wouldn't keep it, he says, I'm going to take that away, and I'm going to give you something you can do. You can believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Those offerings, of course, were important, and they were required by the law of Moses. But they were a system that was doomed to fail. Not because of God, because of man. And so it brings us to that point of understanding, and you need to think on these things. If that's the case, then who's really making it all happen? It ain't you, is it? I know it's not me. It's the Lord. You see, all your church going isn't saving you. All your Bible reading, not saving you. All your giving, not saving you. All your missions work, not saving you. All your homeschooling of children, not saving you. I knew some of you were banking on that, but... All of your choice of denominational affiliation, not saving you. All of your, do you have a King James Bible or not, not saving you. The blood of the precious Lamb of God is the only thing that can take away the sins of the world. That's it. Period, dot, underline, exclamation, and highlight. That's it. He's working it out. He came to do what God wanted him to do. What did God want him to do? Put away the Old Testament covenants. They need to be gone. Because people are still gravitating towards religious activity. They still think that they can work their way to me. They still think they can give their way to me. They still think that they can go join a monastery and sit on a hill, cross-legged for 40 years, on top of a post, and they'll get to me. Have you ever thought, if one person could do that, what it does for the rest? Do you ever think of that? Because by nature, God's standard has to be the same for everyone, right? So if someone could have potentially worked their way to heaven or gone through the sacrificial system all the way to the very end and it resulted in salvation, guess what happens to the rest of us? We have to meet the same criteria. So what's the one criteria that regardless of where you live and who you are and how smart you are and how much money you have and who you were born to and all, what's the one criteria that would work for everybody? Starts with a G, begins with an E, or ends with a, no, grace, God's unmerited favor. Amen? It's the only thing that works for everybody. Because the most intelligent person needs grace. And the ones of us who are slightly dumber than concrete need grace. And the ones with lots of money need grace. And the ones who have two nickels to rub together also need grace. And, and the person who has hot flashes and the one who doesn't both need grace. Thank you for that analogy. I, Jesus' name. 
It's the great thing about a small church. You can, you gotta go with it, you know. You see, it doesn't matter where you are, what you do, how you did it, where you got, how you got there, any of those things. None of those things matter. If the answer is grace, then everybody needs grace. It's sufficient for their sin. Amen? That's why the new covenant works and the old covenant didn't. Because the old covenant actually demanded righteousness and it demanded that you did it. The new covenant demands righteousness and it demanded that he did it for you. Unmerited favor, grace. The result of that is mercy, which God gives you what you do not deserve. Because what I deserve is still death. It's still hell. But because of grace, I get heaven. The unmerited favor produces unmerited action. You see, now we're getting to that place to where we understand what this sacrifice was all about. You see, if you lived at that time, maybe you were familiar with the Roman gods or whatever, you could have come up with all kinds of analogies of these things. But those Roman gods, just like Allah is to this day, were capricious. They had human faults and weaknesses. They got angry. They took it out on humankind. Jesus was none of that. Amen? He came as a humble servant of all. He came as the sheep, the the lamb to the slaughter. He, He came as the one who would lay his life down for his fellow man. You see, that's why the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, when you lay them alongside, you should be going, man, praise God, I'm not under the Old Covenant. Praise God, I'm no longer seeking to please God by the law. He's a God of mercy as well as justice. And because he's a God of mercy and because he's a God of justice, he now can allow each of us that privilege of joining him. Verse 10, it says, and I want you to circle the latter part of it, by that we... By that will, in other words, the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Amen. Hallelujah. Exclamation point. Jump up and down and get really crazy for Jesus. Why? Because by that will, what was the will of God? Jesus said, I have come to do the will of God the Father. The will of God is that his only begotten Son would be offered in your place. And that his blood, his sacrifice, would take away your sin. Finally. Completely. And totally. It would do what all the law-keeping could not do. It would complete what every one of those amazingly... Beautiful sacrifices were intended to to picture. Because the whole temple compound was about Jesus. Every part of it. Again, I'll draw your attention to the book of Exodus. Grab those CDs, go online, listen to it. The whole thing was actually about Jesus. Only problem was, it didn't get you all the way there. Held up the pencil drawing, said this is what it's going to look like. This is how he's going to work. 
He's going to eventually erase the sins before the mercy seat by his own blood, but it hasn't happened yet. So that will accomplished in Christ Jesus by the offering of his body, of course, on Calvary's cross, did that once for all. And make sure that your Bible says once for all and not once and for all. Because there's a huge difference. One indicates time, and the other indicates the object, which is us. Once for all. His sacrifice, one time for all mankind. Not just simply one time, and not for all of mankind. You see, a lot of people look at that and they go, well, it's once and for all. That just could mean one time. No, it means for everybody, exactly once. Sufficient for everybody. Now, does that mean everybody's going to receive it? No. Because Scripture declares to them who believe he offers eternal life. To those who call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. Each one turned to his own way. But not everyone will accept it. Not everyone will believe it. But it is sufficient for every last person who will. Sufficient for all. Acquired by those who receive him. God's will, of course, is that everyone be saved. And some people have a problem with that. Scripture plainly declares that it is, in fact, God's will that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of repentance. So what that tells us is very simply this, that if God wills something, he will have also done all his part to make it so. But he will never force anyone to be saved. He's not going to foist it upon you. He is not going to make you be saved. Because if he did, he takes away your choice, he takes away your free will, and he takes away the very essence of what love is. It also takes away the glory. Because if it doesn't bring him glory, and it would bring him glory if you believed, it does not bring him glory to force you. You can understand that principle this way. If I take you out on a basketball court and we bring the boys' varsity basketball team and you don't play basketball, we can let you win. Does that bring glory? No. But it also wouldn't bring glory if we crush you. So God lets you make the choice. You get to determine how you play the game. You get to believe. And the consequence of believing is receiving. And if you receive, you're saved. And it's sufficient for everyone who does that, no matter what their circumstances are. Beautiful picture of how God deals with something that seemingly can't be dealt with by religion. And I would say cannot be dealt with by religion. No amount of religious activity can do what grace does. It's impossible. And so he says, verse 11 and every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice and sacrifices, which, notice again, 
can never take away sins. Scripture is plain. It's clear. No amount of religious activity takes away sin. No amount of doing anything repeatedly takes away sin. No amount of memorizing Scripture takes away sin. Do you know that? No amount of memorizing Scripture takes away sin. It's useful for spiritual growth, and it goes and does what God wants it to do. But you're not saved because you know the Bible. You're not saved because you have 47 gold stars on the outside of your Bible because you had all those memory verses when you were a child. You're not saved because you have a history of your parents have been Methodists for six generations. You're saved because of the blood of the Lamb. And believing that that erases sin, not religious activity. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, notice again the emphasis here. This man, of course, it's Jesus. After he, because it says that there will be a man who will do this, after he had offered one sacrifice, how many sacrifices? Exactly one. Not ten, not fifty, nor do you need to offer any, or can you offer any that will make it any better or different. That's why it's still grace. Because if there was something you needed to do that was sacrificial, to earn it, receive it, keep it, whatever you want to do with it, then it wouldn't be grace anymore. That's why there can't be any other requirements than you believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If there is anything else you have to do to be saved, then no one can be saved. Because there'll be somebody who can't keep it. And the moment one person can't keep it, it's just like the Old Testament covenant, which didn't erase sin. And then he sat down at the right hand of God. I love the fact that it says this. Because you know what your Bible says? That even the angels in heaven stand before God. Only Jesus has the right to sit down. Why? Because his work is finished. It's done. He's going to be the only one sitting in heaven when you get there. At the right hand of Father God. Unless he comes and gets us via the rapture. That would be really good. Then he will blind many here on earth with the brightness of his appearing. But if you see him in heaven, because you take your last breath here, he's going to be sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Because his work's done. It's sufficient for everybody. Nothing else needs to happen. It's completed. We gain salvation because of his once-for-all sacrifice. Beware of anyone who tells you there's something you need to do to be saved. You don't have to join a church. You don't have to belong to a specific type of church. You don't have to own a certain type of Bible. You don't have to complete a course. You don't have to go to school. You don't have to give X number of dollars. You need the once and for all sacrifice. The one sacrifice that is for all. You need Jesus. If you have that relationship, 
Everything else happens subsequent to it. Very often people get it wrong. Well, I'll clean my life up, and then I'll give my life to Jesus. You can't clean your life up without Jesus. That's having the cart before the horse. You have to be saved to be sanctified. You're never going to be sanctified, no matter how cleaned up you are, until you're saved. You've got to have the one before you get the other. And then the sanctification takes place over your lifetime. Praise God. Some of us can use some extra scrubbing. Some of us have been dipped a little deeper in the mud. But the good news is, when you get to heaven, it's going to be White Robe City. Nobody's going to know. Because God's forgotten. Verse 13, And from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. You see, that hasn't happened yet. Christ's enemies still roam. Satan's still on this earth. But there's a day coming when everything that's ever afflicted you is going to come to an end. Jesus is going to put it all under his submission. For by one offering, notice, notice the use of the word one, by one offering, he has perfected for how long? Forever. By the one sacrifice, he has perfected forever those who, notice this, very important, who are being sanctified. Very important to get that order right. The one sanctifies, the one who's sanctified is continually being sanctified. So when I tell you you're a work in progress and I'm a work in progress, this is exactly what I mean. And this is where it comes from. The one sacrifice is sufficient to save you, but the cleanup takes a while. You see, being sanctified, being made saintly, being set apart for the glory of God is something that we can all do a little better, a little bit better. Amen? So that part of it lasts your whole life. Very carefully here, we are being sanctified. It's an ongoing work. It happens from the day you get saved until the day you go home to be with Jesus. Every saint is being sanctified, and no one has arrived until you arrive there. Once you arrive there, the work's over. Hallelujah, praise God. In verse 15, But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, For after he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts. And in their minds I will write them. And then he adds their sins. Notice this. After this, after those days, because of the new covenant, not because of the law keeping, not because of religious activity, not because of anything that was going on before, but because of the new covenant, the law in their hearts and their minds where I will write them, their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Hallelujah. You see, that wasn't the case for the Old Testament saints. And I've often tried to think this one through, tried to wrap my mind around it, so to speak. Can you imagine 
because we know, and we're going to see when we get to chapter 11, that Abraham died in faith. He died believing that what was written in the Old Testament that he didn't quite understand, that had not happened yet, he died believing it would. He died in faith. He died trusting, in essence, in the Lord Jesus Christ without the Lord Jesus Christ having been here yet. But he believed. So his sins were not completely dealt with yet. So I often wonder what he was thinking about before Jesus said it is finished on Calvary's cross. What was he thinking about while he was there in paradise? Luke 16 paints this picture, by the way. What was he doing? He's going, man, I'm sure glad I'm not going to get spanked for that. Thank you. Thank I, 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 Messiah, when you come, I'm going to be so grateful because I can sit here and I can remember all these things. And then, boom, Jesus dies and says it is finished. And all of a sudden, the weight of the world comes off of Abraham, and he goes, that's what I've been waiting for. You see, now we have that instantaneous freedom from that sin. Then they were waiting for it. They believed it was going to come, and because of it, God honored their faith and took them home to heaven. That's why you're going to see David and Abraham, and Isaac, and all the Old Testament saints who believe by faith. And I believe there's going to be a lot of them. I believe there are going to be a lot of Jews who actually believe by faith. They trusted the Messiah was going to come. They didn't quite get all the parts right, but they believed by faith and died in that faith. But they were waiting for Jesus. They were believing Messiah would come. And all of a sudden, the moment Jesus died and said it is finished, they're like, the weight's off. Home to heaven. You see, that's what we already have. And I pray you enjoy it. I pray you relish it. I pray that you walk in it. I pray that you stop walking in guilt and being weighted down. Does that mean that you can sin at will? Of course not. Does that mean that you can do whatever you want? No, it does not. But it means that the grace that saved you is also sufficient to keep you. And the grace that keeps you is able to cleanse you. And if you're cleansed and you're righteous and made so by the blood of the Lamb, which is not your work, it's His work, it rests with Him. And you can't mess that part up. And so while you're abiding, you're secure. And because you're secure, you have peace. And when you have peace, you have that guardian over your heart that just says, I know that I know that I know, yep, I am a sinner, but I'm saved by grace. The blood of the Lamb has washed me and made me clean. And because of it, you can have joy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that verse 18 says that where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Lord, because you have saved us, we don't need to make our own offerings for sin. Those things have been taken care of by you, Jesus. And we pray that you would keep that in the center of our thoughts. God, we do want to live holy and righteous lives. We don't want to give you anything to be displeased of. We don't want to walk in darkness after being saved. We don't want to participate in the very things that you've saved us from. But we know that your grace is sufficient for our failures and weaknesses.
Help us to repent quickly and to receive that restoration of relationship with you. Lord, we love you. We thank you that for by grace we've been saved through faith, that not of ourselves, it is your gift to those who believe. Lord, we thank you for it. We praise you for it. We exalt you for it. We pray that you would bless us as your people. Uh, Encourage us this week to let go of the guilt of our sin. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but you washed it white as snow. We love you. We thank you. We bless you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll pick up in verse 19 as we head towards chapter 11, the Hall of Faith.